0: Resolute Square. There was also maintained what was called an enemy's list, which is rather extensive and continually being updated.
1: Democrats want Republicans dead.
0: Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody,
1: and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions.
0: On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people
1: peacefully protesting. No, it's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. <laughs> I'm Rick Wilson, and this is The Enemy's List. Our guest today on The Enemy's List is Dr. Fiona Hill. She is the senior fellow at the Brookings Institute Center on U.S. and Europe and the chancellor of Durham University in the United Kingdom. She is a former national security officer ranging uh, in jobs from being a carded national intelligence officer um, and served in the Bush, Obama, and Trump administrations and is a Russia expert on the authoritarian collapse and the dangers of that collapse spreading beyond Russia – uh, potentially even to the U.S. You probably saw her first came to your attention probably during the Trump impeachment hearings, but she has an enormous body of work, an enormous uh, history of service that provides a lot of insights that I think uh, our audience will appreciate. So with that, uh, Fiona, welcome to the program.
0: Thanks, Rick. Thank you for having me.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. You know, you have written an awful lot about the risks uh, that America could replicate the collapse that Russia experienced in the post-Soviet era um, to a, a more authoritarian form of government. Talk to us a little bit about those parallels.
0: Yeah, well, I'm sure that for most people, that seems like a little bit of a leap. I mean, obviously, very different uh, countries, different histories, different uh, structures of government. But there is one thing uh, that the two uh, countries have in common, and this has been something that's been increasingly in common over uh, a long sweep of time here in the United States that you yourself and many other people have commented on, which is the fixation in the US political system on a strong presidency and increasingly on the individual of the president. In Russia, and obviously in the former Soviet Union and the Russian Empire, long history of a single leader going from the Tsar to the General Secretary of the Communist Party and then eventually president of the Soviet Union to the president of Russia. And a very weak executive around that and obviously not a very strong uh, parliamentary system, one that kind of emerges and fits and starts very late on in the Tsarist period, constantly the dissolutions of the parliament. So, you know, not that kind of parliamentary tradition, which in fact, the United States does have in the form of Congress and the Senate. Obviously, Russia doesn't have a, a very strong federal system, never, never has. Uh, but the Soviet Union was um, a federated republic, in theory at least, which is how we got Ukraine, Belarus, Moldova, Kazakhstan, you know, you name it, after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, those were the constituent parts. But it's the presidency that's really at the essence of this. And over time in the United States, our president, we've started to fetishize over time, because the president is many things in one, just like the Russian president is the head of state, the commander in chief of the military, the chief executive, the prime minister uh, like role. And obviously, as we've seen successively over presidencies, the United States would become fixated on the present as the be all and the end all in the system. And that's where I've got really concerned, because when Putin came into power in December of 1999, the presidency in Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union had been pretty weak under uh, Boris Yeltsin. And Russia had been a much more pluralistic place. A lot of people, in fact, thought that Russia couldn't turn back to the kind of authoritarian, autocratic uh, system. If we go back to the 1990s, there was lots of people expanding on that, that Russia had gone on a different path. It looked like messy, admittedly, for its democracy. There wasn't that partisan politics. But then you get under uh, Vladimir Putin when he comes in over the last 23, now into 24 years, as we move into the next year, someone who's whittled away any check and balance that was in the system and actually put the presidency right there in the center. And that's what we're dealing with right now here as we speak in the United States. Certainly an effort in the form of Donald Trump as a former president to come right back into the presidency and do just exactly uh, what Vladimir Putin has done in the Russian case.
1: It's interesting, a rem- an interesting reminder Uh, you just made it that Putin took power in 1999 in what looked like a pretty democratic ish election. It it wasn't, I mean, maybe not as, as, as robust a democracy as America, but it certainly was not just the party chairman being replaced by the next party chairman by the central committee. And it just, it struck, it struck me that 25 years of power um, is an enormously corrupting, Place to be for anybody, but Trump is trying. I think. I mean, he he certainly is doing all the Putin esque signifiers. I'm coming back no matter what. I'm going to punish the enemies of my of my people. I'm going to, you know, exercise power at the executive level, unconstrained by the parliamentary system, the Congress, or by the law. Did you see signs that Putin was going to go that far off the rails that early? Like, in 99, it didn't look like Putin was going to be the pure authoritarian he is today.
0: No, that's right, Rick. And that's why we should worry because, you know, in the Russian case, even, you know, into a couple of years of the 2000s and the first term um, of Putin's presidencies, and the first terms were only four years, and in fact, he actually stepped aside after two Uh, successive presidential terms in, you know, 2007, 2008 and had Dmitry Medvedev step in as president. He moved to prime minister. I mean, that was also a bit of a warning sign. (laughs) He didn't really kind of go away and disappear. He didn't go off to, you know, basically Mount Vernon and, you know, start farming or anything like that. You know, there was no farewell address. He was just right there as uh, prime minister. But if we'd looked back and he had actually disappeared from uh, the political scene after those first two presidencies, despite a lot of things we would have been concerned about, we'd have still said, wow, okay. That was really, you know, quite something. He he looked, you know, much more pragmatic and practical. Yes, there was always that KGB uh, history that was uh, omnipresent. There, there'd been wars in Chechnya. There'd been, you know, quite a bit of political mm-hmm. violence and, you know, emerging signs of repression. But at the same time, this was a very different, more pluralistic, uh, more dynamic situation than you got when he comes back again as president in 2011, 2012. That's when things really start to shift. And that's why we should be really worried about Trump. Because if he comes back again, he's not obviously been prime minister, but he's still been there as the dominant figure in the Republican Party and a major figure on the international as well as the domestic stage for this whole time in his presidency. He never went anywhere. That's what we should be concerned about if he comes back again in Twenty twenty
1: four. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, as you've written a lot and based on your background as being from someone who was from a, uh, an area where there was a lot of economic stress. um, And when you were growing up, that, that kind of an environment and that, and I do, I do think that's widespread in America today. I, I don't take the economic anxiety argument as the only thing that drives Trumpism, but it's certainly a big factor why is it that authoritarians like that, like Putin and Trump, are so skilled at playing on that class warfare angle at, and so skilled at at convincing people that their problems are somebody else's fault and the only, the only solution is the strong man? It's always been one of those X questions I can't quite put my finger on the solution to. Support for Rick Wilson's The Enemies List comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash wilson. That's odoo.com slash wilson. Odoo oh, modern management made simple
0: partly because the solutions are so complicated and also hard and request you know, and require all kinds of sacrifice that people you know don't want to go through when people are hurting economically or they feel that they've lost their positions in society they've lost their sense of selves and identity all these things are usually entwined together Uh, they don't want to suffer anymore. You know, they feel pretty aggrieved and they would very much like things to go back to how they were previously if there's a feeling of loss or in fact go in a direction that would give them something if it's feeling like they've never quite achieved anything. And if you look back into Russia of the 1990s after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, many people lost their jobs there was the shock therapy of rapid privatization of what had been a state dominated sector for you know basically the whole entirety of the soviet uh, period uh, people lost their identity people who were you know russians within the soviet union they felt like they'd lost a country putin is very Cleverly played, not just with economic grievance from the 1990s when the state was bankrupt and you know people lost all of their savings, you know everything their their whole well-being and livelihood uh, was challenged. But it also plays with uh, the culture wars as well, the identity politics: who are you? And what we see in uh, Russia as well now is targeting of marginal groups. In fact, you know we're seeing that uh, Russia has just outlawed what they're purporting to be an international LGBTQ plus. Organization as an extremist, you know, organization. Uh, He's played up the Russian Orthodox Church. He's talked about in the same language that Trump has been using lately about enemies within Trojan horses, fifth columns, that word vermin that uh, Trump used. That's the kind of, you know, language that uh, Putin uses. He's usually been more careful on the immigration and, um, you know, other fronts because Russia actually has a very complex history. Yeah, and there's not just ethnic Russians inside of Russia. You've got Tatars and... You've got Buryats and all these you know, groups that nobody on the outside would ever think about. But Putin has to be very careful not to pit you know, Russian citizens against each other in that way. But he's certainly uh, not at all shy of going after anyone he sees as not having broader uh, societal support like LGBTQ community. It's very small, very beleaguered. You know, you can see obviously the same thing you know, happening in our own context. Although Putin is very also careful to blame enemies outside not just enemies within, because enemies within could lead to the social strife that he doesn't want to see. In fact, he's got to be very careful. This is the country that gave us the word pogrom, And uh, Putin knows that in Russia's past, when you pit Russians against each other too much, it usually brings down the state. Actually, that should be another warning for us as well. Because, you know, you see that Putin and, and Trump have very much the same playbook, apart from when it comes to pitting people against enemies of the state within against fellow Americans. Putin is very careful about not to do that. He's making the LGBTQ plus uh, community part of a, a Trojan horse, uh, a fifth column of international uh, efforts to bring, uh, to bring Russia down.
1: Right. Something, from, something ex- exogenous to Russia um, coming in to hurt them.
0: That's right. He's basically claiming that this is not indigenous to Russia and that it's, it's outside enemies are playing with domestic enemies to bring Russia down. <laughs>
1: You wrote or co-wrote a terrific book about how Putin as a KGB operative suddenly became the guy in the center of the Kremlin. We haven't seen a lot of spy masters around the world ascend to political power in big international powers, but Putin really is the sort of the apotheosis of that. He wasn't like a senior KGB official when he won the first time. He was a, a mid to high level guy, but he wasn't. He wasn't a barrier. He wasn't he wasn't an Andropov. He was he, he wasn't quite at that level, but he seems to have sort of like a street sense of how to manipulate people that I find both chilling and sort of fascinating.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right, Rick. You've you've hit it spot on. I mean, he wasn't like the upper echelons of uh, the KGB, and he wasn't like H- George H.W. Herbert Walker Bush in the US context, who becomes president after being head of the CIA. I mean, he was, of course, a long uh term public figure, who was appointed diplomat, you know, to that role. He didn't kind of work up the ranks. And Putin, as you said, didn't really ascend up the ranks. He's still the guy who has uh, the the roles of uh, in the office of dirty tricks, if you would have it, (laughs) the black ops uh, guy, the guy who's always looking for an angle on how to, uh, you know, basically manipulate people, look for their vulnerabilities, turn their transgressions against them. He doesn't have any kind of view of Humanity in a compassionate uh, or indulgent kind of way. He always just sort of sees people as vulnerable to the things that they've done themselves. He's looking for every, any corrupt act, anything that he can actually use. And when you mention the street sense, that's very important as well because Putin comes from a pretty hard scrabble background. He literally is a kid on the streets. Uh, the streets in uh, Leningrad of the nineteen uh, sixties and seventies, where he's growing up, because he's born in fifty two in St. Petersburg, as it was then Leningrad. And he grows up in a very poor family in a communal flat set up. So these are these big apartment buildings where they were divided up and many families are sharing what would once have been a rather grander apartment. And the uh, buildings are all organized around what the Russians call a dvor or courtyard. And Putin is the kid of the Dvor, the kind of latchkey kid who's out there in the neighborhood fighting with all the other kids. And it's really a kind of Lord of the Jungle, Lord of the Flies kind of approach to everything. And so that suits him pretty well for when he gets into the KGB, when he's out there in what later becomes the sort of wild east of capitalism, trying to turn people into government assets, including and especially often uh, corrupt Western business people, people who weren't necessarily corrupt, but they show up there and they get corrupted by, um, you know, Prostitution or money laundering, or uh, rather changing money um, in illegally. Um, you know, the Soviet period where that was illegal unless you did it officially. There's anything that Putin can latch onto, he will use. And he says his greatest skill from the KGB is working with people. And he doesn't mean working with them in that human resources kind of way. He means working on them and trying to work to turn them into you know something he can use later. It's manipulation and exploitation. <laughs>
1: For all that we draw these parallels now between Putin and Trump and their behavior, uh, my theory of the case has always been that Vladimir Putin saw in Donald Trump a man. You know they, that old intelligence community rule of spies are div- driven by the MICE acronym: money, ideology, compromise, and ego.
0: Right, exactly. Right, that's great. Yeah.
1: If Putin saw Donald Trump, he had to think this guy scores a ten on all of those categories. I can have a lot of a lot of influence on him very quickly. Uh, you know, as a case officer, as, you know he had to look at Trump and say, "Wow, this guy's got every vulnerability I want," and and he he's, he seems to have played on them for the last eight years very effectively.
0: Yeah, it's because the the last one in your mice acronym ego is the one where Trump is the most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all we've all talked about you know everything else. Everyone assumes that. Putin has loads of information, compromising information. We have it all. I mean, there's 91 criminal indictments. I mean, we don't need to have had, you know, these tapes that people are talking about. We've got Access Hollywood. You know, we've got this, that, and the other. It's really about how vulnerable and fragile, you know, Trump is to manipulation, uh, given his narcissism and um, his ego. And Putin right away, you know, as I saw it firsthand, honed right in on the fact that Trump loves to be flattered and will actually try to destroy, absolutely try to destroy anybody who insults him in any way.
1: Trust me, I know that story. Yeah,
0: I, mean, <laughs> I think we all do. You but, know, by this point,
1: yeah, yeah. right? We, we've been to that rodeo. We've been
0: there, exactly.
1: When you ended up testifying, I mean, you you had seen the way that Trump had been played by by Putin. You understood the terrain that that they were building a political operation uh, with the Ukraine story, and and more broadly that Putin was. Essentially, handling Trump not as a foreign counterpart, but as an asset almost. He was he was working this guy at every different level. Talk to us a little bit more about about how you saw that and your sense at the time of of what you saw uh, of Putin as the operator playing Donald Trump.
0: Yeah, I mean there were a couple of um, really obvious uh, episodes, some that everybody saw, frankly, like the Helsinki press conference, uh, which was really you know, Trump's uh, reaction. Uh, to being asked to, in front of uh, Putin, essentially as Trump saw, it, humiliate himself by having to talk about interference in the election, and Trump was, of course um, completely fixated on the fact that he 'd had, in his words, the greatest victory of all time, huge crowds here, there, and everywhere, but of course, we all know that he had not won the popular vote and he'd scraped through in the Electoral College, still scraped through and still, you know, legitimately elected in the Electoral College. That's all college. it
1: takes in this country.
0: Uh, exactly right. and um, he, But deep down, he was clearly paranoid. I mean, it came up all the time in just such an obvious way that, in fact, there had been something of an influence by the Russians on uh, people's opinions. I think it's un- unbelievably difficult to prove that. I know some people claim they have. I don't. I don't buy it. I don't think you could go out there and identify the seventy to eighty thousand people who voted and you know figure out what had actually made the uh, change their mind in that kind of moment in those three counties and three states, etc. But I think for Trump, just that knowledge was enough to make him feel incredibly insecure. And what he wanted more than anything else, in front of uh, Putin must look like the man, like Putin is the iconic figure that you know gets uh, respect, fear, you know, you name it. And to be basically asked in front of the whole world at the Helsinki uh, press conference after his bilateral meeting uh, with Putin to denounce uh, Putin in the election when he's wanting to say I had the best election. There was no interference. He's always trying to deflect away from what might have happened in 2016. I mean, that was another episode of utter meltdown. Now, Putin didn't necessarily manipulate the situation, but, you know, kind of he could have done. It. And in fact, Putin himself tries to help Trump out because Putin realizes the whole thing's going to blow up. And in fact, you know, right the way afterwards, we get even more sanctions against Russia, uh, efforts to have you know the arms control negotiations that Putin and, and Trump at the time really wanted. You know, founder as a result of all of that. That's just a classic example of Trump being in a full-on meltdown because of the whole you know Russia issue in front of the whole world. Another uh, um, episode that's also illustrative, I think, of what we're talking about, but is not you know so well known. Putin again recognizes that Trump only really responds to flattery in any kind of positive way. And so, apropos of really nothing, he just uh, basically has at a press conference, a a, a kind of a a great praising session of Trump. It was after some information had come out about how well the US economy was doing. And he, you know, starts talking. This is, which is very unusual for a Russian president to be praising the US economy (laughs) and then praising the superior handling of, you know, Donald Trump of uh, the economy as a result of this. And Trump immediately, as Putin knew he would, turns to, you know, the the White House staff and says, I want to talk to Putin because he said nice things about me. And, you know, we immediately and this was exactly, you know, the wrong thing at the time because uh, Congress was scrutinizing Trump. Any discussions between Trump and Putin created just a massive uh, domestic backlash because this is all in the period where everyone believes that Putin has, well, not everybody, but there's certainly belief, especially in the Democratic Party, keep talking about it all the time, that it was Putin who elected Trump. And so this just kind of, you know, creates domestic turmoil, again, as Putin knew it would. But Putin also really wants to be uh, courted by the US president, because it still is, you know, the case, as for most world leaders, to this juncture, perhaps not in the future, that they want to be seen in the company of the US president themselves for their own legitimation. So it's a kind of a Uh, you know, two edged or a kind of a, you know, two sided coin. here. Symbiotic. Yeah. Yeah. Because Putin wants to have the, uh, you know, adulation of Trump and Trump wants to have the adulation of Putin for different kinds of reasons. But it still, you know, kind of means that, you know, Trump is also courting Putin as Putin's trying to play Trump.
1: Uh, I had a friend who spent a lot of time in the intelligence space uh, on Russia focused issues, who said to me, when Trump went and started at the NATO summit and started talking about people not paying their fair share and whether we'd leave. He said that was probably one of the greatest political moments of Vladimir Putin's life, where he had an American president uh, essentially trying to wear down NATO and and talk down NATO, and who spent a lot of time trying to suck up to Putin or, or, or at least you know, interface with Putin to get that ego boost. The corrosive language Trump used about NATO was one of Putin's greatest political moments. Um, in as 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 the head of Russia,
0: yeah. Look, there, there are many moments like that. Um, and uh, you know, there, but there is another side to this. In many respects, Trump was actually right. You know, to put all that pressure on uh, the other NATO member states. It's just the way that he did it, and the way that he did it in public. Because Putin also believes that NATO is just a tool of the United States. And the more it looks like, or is in reality, the United States carrying the can for NATO, the less uh, Putin believes that this is actually a real European security mechanism. So part of the dilemma that we have here is that Europeans really need to stand up and they need to pay for you know their own security. They did need to be paying the 2%, not just Europe. He is looking at you, Canada, as well, which is actually one of the, the worst offenders you know, of all of them. We can't like, get our neighbours to the north off like they here. But it was the way that Trump talked about it, because Trump was also not really fully processing and never really processed the importance of Article 5 because he thought it was just a rip-off for the United States. The United States is the security mechanism. And frankly, you know, the whole way things play out in Ukraine or in the Middle East right now, when everyone's looking to the United States, just feeds into that. Trump was actually, like people before him, said in, you know, much different ways, like Bob Gates, Secretary Gates, President Obama, Mm. you know, George, you know, uh, W. Bush as well, basically saying, look, NATO really needs to be looking um, like a proper you know other nato members need to be picking this up here this is an alliance it's not just a a one you know kind of uh, a one stop shop for united states security so we still have that dilemma it's just that what trump uh, wanted to do was if these guys guys are not going to pay i'm going to withhold article 5 and if they're not going to pay the united states is going to walk away there was no sense of alliances or the value of uh, of nato as as an alliance because the united states is the only country that actually has allies, an alliance like that. China doesn't. Russia must, you know, certainly doesn't. And the Warsaw Pact was, in fact, a fiction. This is what the Russians tend to see. They think that the Warsaw Pact and NATO were the same because the Warsaw Pact was Russia and a cover for Russia. But, you know, we need to have to show for the future that NATO isn't just a tool of the United States, but NATO is a real alliance
1: to some degree, I, I mean, I would argue, and I'd, I'd love to get your opinion on this. I At I, some degree, I, I would say that you know the Russian invasion of Ukraine has has solidified NATO, the European part of NATO, more than more than almost anything else could have.
0: It has, no, absolutely. I mean, that's the irony, right? I mean, if, if Putin hadn't invaded Ukraine. In fact, the thing that he wished for the most, that your colleague, you know, pointed out that, you know, Trump talking down uh, NATO, mm-hmm. NATO looking, as the French uh, President Macron said, brain dead, you know, not looking like, you know, kind of much of anything. He's completely turned this around. You've even had the the Finns and the Swedes who never really wanted right. to join NATO before joining NATO. Right. We keep forgetting, you know, um, NATO did have a border uh, with Russia in the past in uh, Norway. Sure. Pretty teeny. But I've got a huge border uh, with Russia, irrespective of whether Ukraine or any other country in, with Finland. Finland has a massive border uh, with Russia. And the Finns were always ready to defend this, you know, back in the day. But now they feel that they need to be in NATO as well.
1: I think Finland joining NATO with the long echoes of, of Russia, Russo-Finnish military interaction the russians had to hate that one at a at a particularly high level
0: yeah and you can actually see them um you know really responding to it now there's these bizarre episodes the finns are going to close their border for a couple of weeks because they keep um you know mobilizing and weaponizing migrants and sending them on bicycles you know, right. to go across I, all the, uh, those
1: empty bikes at the yeah, border exactly right. <laughs> exactly
0: i mean it's just you know it's it's indicative of you know the issues that we're dealing with but absolutely as you've said um, Putin, um, you know, did what really, in fact, uh, you know, Trump's uh, high pressure, you know, Bob Gates, uh, Secretary Gates' pressure couldn't have done, which is get, you know, the European uh, countries to really sort of step up on their defensive uh, posture.
1: It's certainly, I mean, Ukraine is certainly going to be something I think that is is central to the future of Europe, Russia and, and NATO. It, it, the coming year is going to be a very, uh, it's going to be a hard year. I would argue that Putin's made a very big bet that relies in part on Trump taking office again Yes, to save him on Ukraine.
0: In fact, I mean, that's absolutely right. I mean, if anything, if, you know, listeners, you know, kind of paying attention to this and thinking about the next year, Putin more than anybody, perhaps, he, perhaps Trump himself wants Trump back in the Oval Office because Putin then thinks game over. Uh, for the united states no longer you know major world leader game over for nato and absolutely game over for ukraine and anywhere else uh, for that matter because you know putin has read trump you know pretty pretty clearly pretty pretty effectively
1: well dr hill i want to thank you so much for coming on the enemies list today i really appreciate your time and this was a uh, an enlightening and smart discussion i really appreciate it look forward to having you back again sometime and uh, we look forward to seeing more of your writings out of out of Brookings. And, uh, and all best with all your other endeavors.
0: Thanks so much, Vic. It's a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Hey, American Muslims. Uh, a group of you this weekend announced that you were going to do everything you could to defeat Joe Biden in the 2024 election. You, you realize who you're picking instead of Joe Biden, right? The guy who openly says he wants to deport you. The guy who openly says he wants to deport Muslims the author of the Muslim travel ban, Donald Trump. You remember Donald Trump, right? I know you're angry about the president's policy toward Israel and Gaza. I understand it. I don't accept it, but I understand it. But right now what you're doing is the most counterproductive thing I think I've ever seen in American politics, okay? What you're doing is saying that you're seeking to defeat Joe Biden in 2024 and replace him with Donald Trump. Because you know your third-party candidates and your other short-term actions are going to um, do anything to change the ballgame. You know it's not going to change the ballgame, but it will hurt Biden. If that's your objective, and if you believe that, that Donald Trump will be a better president for Muslim Americans than Joe Biden, then welcome to the enemies list.